0: Okay, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we are uh, about to begin. I'm glad to see that everybody has had a chance to be able to um, grab a cup of coffee. We've got a little bit more time on our hands now today because of the fact that um, we did not have a communion service, the first service. And um, and yeah, uh, uh, not too many... Uh, Other things distracting us on on, uh, Sunday morning. Uh, First of all, we'll we'll talk a little bit later about some of the things that we have planned for the summer, but in a little bit of uh, talk about the Reformation as well. But We're going to be uh, going to 1 Peter chapter 2 and uh, following up, I think, a little bit on the theme of what our our worship service this morning uh, was all about. The relationship between faith and works. Should we, um, should we start with a prayer? Okay. Oh, dear Lord and Savior, we know that we cannot will our own salvation, and we know that we cannot, of our own sinful natures, will things that are pleasing to you. Therefore, we cannot do good works either without that faith that trusts in you and a faith that boldly comes before you and relies. Upon your justifying verdict that pardons and forgives us and accepts us and regenerates us and gives unto us a spiritual life that flows out of this faith in you. Help us therefore to be able to live that Christian life in such a way that we bring glory to you. And where we fail and we bring our sins before you for forgiveness we also know that this also is the way that you are glorified. So whether we come to you as sinful people or whether or not we go out into the world as people forgiven, living, and doing those things which you have commanded us to do, we pray that it would always redound to your greater glory. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Whoa! That sun just caught your table uh, and is hitting me in the eyes. Could you just turn that thing down? I thought it was maybe you, Rachel, but um, I guess it was the sun. Um, I think uh, kind of in in preparation, I guess maybe for our 500th anniversary, I'm not going to make any big slide presentations, but rather... um, uh, I guess there have been some documentaries that have been out. How many of you have seen the PBS documentary on Luther? Uh, I, I, have, I have to confess I have not. I just haven't had the time to, to do so. Did Have you found it to be helpful, uh, beneficial, good, slanted? It was a nice, really more like a history lesson about Luther. Um, uh, We have one of our our members who um, uh, just recently heard an individual who has written a book on Luther, and um, he's made some amazing statements. She was was typing them down. This is Julia Weed. She was typing them uh, down as she was listening to them, but uh, this individual was basically saying that Martin Luther, outside of Jesus himself and the Apostle Paul, that that Martin Luther has had the greatest amount of influence on human history outside of those two, of anybody since the time of Christ. What Martin Luther in his innocence did, the minute that he went before that emperor, Charles V, and he stood there and he said, unless I am convinced from holy scriptures and from clear reason I cannot and will not recant. God help me. Amen. And he left. He walked out of the room. Uh, This is something that had not, I mean, it's unprecedented in terms of medieval history that anybody, a monk, an insignificant monk, that he could stand there before the emperor and make that kind of confession. When he did so and he appealed to Scripture, he made it clear that it was possible to challenge authority using the Word of God. And that's the, the, I mean, that, that can set all kinds of things in motion. The, the, the peasants, when they had their peasants' revolt, they thought, well, if Martin Luther can stand up against the emperor and against authority, so can we. And Luther would have to say to them, that's different because you're not doing so on the basis of Scripture. You're doing it on the basis of the fact that Well, yes, you are living in an awful lot of repression, but at the same time, there are different ways of being able to deal with that problem. Um, We also, I think, uh, see that in Martin Luther, as um, as he stood before this emperor, he was also saying something about the common man. Now, Luther was not common, common. I mean he came from a family where his father had what kind of profession his father was a he was a minor that's right um, that was to say he was at least under twenty one and he could not go into bars okay just try to try to try to work on you guys you know, just to kind of see if you're alive here um, yeah he was he was a minor, but uh this area around um uh, Eisleben, uh, where he, where Luther was born. Uh, even if you go there today, you'll just look out and see all the mining stuff that's out there. This is kind of on the southern tip of the Harz Mountains, and uh, and uh, so Luther was raised with enough money, I guess you might say, to be able to actually get an education, which was not common in those days. That the average person might have a hard time. You would have to be a person of some substance and maybe even of some standing but uh, when Luther went to school you know the idea was that he was going to be a lawyer his father wanted him to be a lawyer probably for reasons that you know uh, be great to be able to have a son who might work for free to protect you or defend you if that might be the case but certainly it was a part of the way that you elevated yourself at that time in the empire uh, is that through the use of law but uh, Luther's uh, profound struggle with being righteous before God, uh, he, he saw perhaps ever more clearly in the face of that lightning storm where he was almost killed, uh, he saw ever more clearly that there was going to be a day that he was going to have to stand before God in judgment, but it was also built into the culture of that time. Roman Catholicism had done a very good job of making everybody very aware of the fact that they were going to have to make an accounting before God. Just that Roman Catholicism was giving everybody a, um, an indulgence or they were giving to them uh, a way of being able to buy God off with you know, whatever it might be. Maybe if you were really, really, really concerned, you would go into monastic orders. And of course, that's where Luther went. And Luther needed, he needed to have... Consolation and he drove his confessor crazy with confessing his sins. You know, they, they were the, there's the rumor that he was going back and forth to the Staupitz and confessing and confessing and confessing, and finally he said to him, Martin, just, why don't you just go memorize the Bible? And Luther said, Okay. Uh, his command of Scripture not just his knowledge of what might be the Latin text uh, or possibly also some earlier versions of the German text, but usually Latin. Um, As Luther then began to study Greek, he could quote Greek and Hebrew. He could quote the text by memory. In fact, a lot of his writings, um, we sometimes even have corrections because he was not sitting there going, now where was that in Isaiah? You know, uh, He would just say Isaiah the 42nd chapter and then he would quote it and sometimes it's the 43rd chapter or whatever it might be. But that was the kind of person that Martin Luther was. He drank the scriptures and then like a reservoir, it was held back by the dam of his own frustration over his righteousness. And then when that dam broke, it let loose a courage and a willingness to die for the faith because he knew that not just that he was objecting to these, the sale of these indulgences, but he was beginning to see that the entire system that the Roman Catholic Church had imposed upon the medieval church was there to essentially endear you financially, and otherwise to the Roman Catholic Church so that you could be saved. And when that dam broke, the question was, where do we go then for our confidence and our hope? And the Lutheran Reformation set loose not just in a tidal wave of spiritual resurgence and renaissance, but it set loose also a huge amount of secular uh, forces, some of which were not so good. Um, the um, uh, you know you sometimes wonder what what motivated these these uh, nobles to actually want to embrace the Reformation, and for many of them, it was the opportunity to be able to confiscate the lands of the church. The church, by the time of the Reformation, had owned somewhere around one third of all the property and land in Europe. A third. Can you imagine what that meant in terms of wealth, but also some of these nobles thought, yay, yeah, that'd be great. But uh, at the same time, they, were, they themselves were also facing great dangers in embracing the Reformation. We had talked about Martin Chemnitz, and just to tie together a couple of things. Um, Martin Chemnitz, one of the things that Martin Chemnitz, uh, Chemnitz did was he helped to bring the Lutheran Reformation to a place, place called, it was sometimes called Brunswick and sometimes it's called Braunschweig. It's, a, the, it's the same name. I guess maybe Brunswick is actually maybe a little bit earlier. There was a Saxon duke by the name of Bruno and Brunswick was a kind of a crossing or a place where he had established a camp, and that's where the original name came from. But Brunswick became this magnificent city, independent of the dukes. Uh, The same thing had happened in Lüneburg, as well as in Brunswick. These were the centers of where the dukes held their power, and then around the 15th century, they kicked them out because they were then ruled by town councils. And Brunswick then, because they did not have a Roman Catholic uh, duke that was, uh, that was over them, they were able, as a town council, to invite in the Lutheran Reformation, and Martin Chemnitz uh, was w- uh, one of those people who helped to bring that about. We're going to, in our heritage tour, we're going to go to uh, Brunswick. We're going to go to Braunschweig and have a chance to be able to see what was left of it. They... The, uh, they, uh, eventually, you know, of course, uh, what happened was um, uh, the, uh, the Duke of Brunschweig-Wolfenbüttel, uh, say it with me, Wolfenbüttel. You have to say it as though you've been just eating bratwurst and your mouth is still full of bread. Wolfenbüttel. Yeah. Uh, they, when they moved from Brunswick, they went to Wolfenbüttel, and there in Wolfenbüttel is Henry. He didn't want the Reformation. He wanted to actually remain Roman Catholic. So what he did is he took his forces, and he attacked uh, both Bruns, uh, Brunswick and also he attacked Guslar. And that's when the Schmalkaldic League then brought their army against Henry. They defeated him, but when they defeated Henry... Uh, that's when the Emperor Charles V said, we can't have this. And he gathered and marshaled his forces. And they, they, his forces then attacked the, the Smalkaldic League, which was the consortium of all of these nobles that lived in northern Germany that had become Lutheran, it's particularly the elector of Saxony. And uh, it, was a, it was led by a, by a Spanish general called the Duke of Alba, Uh, absolutely brilliant strategist, and they outflanked the Small Caldic League and they uh, destroyed the Small Caldic League. And with that, basically then the emperor had total and sovereign control over especially this area in northern Germany where the Lutherans were. Um, Then they tried to be able to impose what was called the the, uh, Leipzig interim followed by the Augsburg interim, where they were trying to be able to make the Lutherans Roman Catholic again. And there's one good thing about Germanic stubbornness. It's that it can, if it's stubborn for the wrong reasons, it's bad, bad, bad. If it's stubborn for the right reasons, it's good, good, good. And those uh, Germanic Lutherans that had uh, accepted and tasted the sweetness of the gospel Uh, They absolutely resisted and fought against uh, this uh, Augsburg interim. Uh, The city of Magdeburg in particular, if you've ever been over to Germany, this rather prominent city at that time, stood their ground against uh, the emperor and the imperial forces. And a guy named Maurice, Duke Maurice, came up against Magdeburg and burned the entire city. We don't even know how many people in the city were killed as a result of it, but it was a carnage. And this, uh, of course, only infuriated the Lutherans all the more, for which they then stood their ground. And finally, uh, uh, there was uh, Maurice of Saxony. They called him the Judas of Meissen because he had switched sides. He was on the Lutheran side, then he got onto the Catholic side, and he fought with the emperor, and that's one of the reasons why they wanted to beat the Small Caldic League. But then he switched back. And then he switched back and went after the emperor, almost captured the emperor. The emperor was so disgusted by the fact that he was put in such a weak and vulnerable position that Charles V resigned and he turned over the emperorship to his brother, Ferdinand I. But in any case, the point was is that they then achieved this peace uh, that enabled them then to be able to say, basically, if your ruler is Lutheran, then the religion of the of your Demand, uh, area could be, remain Lutheran. If your ruler was Roman Catholic then you would be Roman Catholic. The only problem was it was a little bit unfair because you could be Roman Catholic in an area that had a Lutheran ruler but you could not be a Lutheran inside of a territory that was Roman Catholic. So in any case that's that's kind of as that Reformation rolls forward you, know, you want to keep in your, in your mind that uh, there were courageous people. There were people who were perhaps not always so good in their intentions. Uh, almost all of Scandinavia became Lutheran. Uh, they were kind of outside of the reach of the imperial forces. And um, and of course uh, uh, we'll talk at some point in the future about how by the time that 16, uh, the beginning of the 17th century, the 1600s, um, The imperial forces, once again, were trying to basically destroy uh, the Lutheran faith. And uh, they conquered all the way up through northern Germany. And then a uh, a guy by the name of Gustavus Adolphus, who was a Swedish king, saw the danger, what was happening, uh, wanted to uh, come down and actually prevent the imperial forces from controlling the Baltic. And that was really kind of the beginning of what became the Thirty Years' War. And the Thirty Years' War was a brutal, brutal war. Uh, all, of, all of Germany lost at least half its population. Northern Germany probably lost somewhere around 60, 70, 80% of their population. And it wasn't just warfare, it was also because of disease, shortage of food. These armies were marauding all over Europe at that time, stealing everybody's food, killing people, killing livestock, and eventually, of course, uh, it took almost 100 years for northern Germany to even re, uh, rebound after that war. It was a devastating war and a religious war. But we'll talk more, a little bit, about uh, all of that as uh, we come a little bit closer to the great day of the Great Reformation. All right. We're in First Peter chapter 2. Now... One of the things uh, we want to emphasize here is when we approach God from the standpoint of the law itself. You know, Paul will say the law works wrath. the The law uh, stirs up sin. Um, The minute that you say to the kid, "Don't put your hand in the cookie jar," "Don't put your tongue on the pump handle." The kid wants to put his hand in the cookie jar and he puts his tongue in the pump handle. Only people who come from northern locations understand the dangers of that. Um, um, uh, That law, as it's presented to us, as Paul will oftentimes speak about it, basically is saying that the law almost makes our life worse. But there's another side to this, and that is that as a response to the gospel, as a response to God's forgiveness, as a response to the fact that we cannot keep the laws, as we look into the law and we see our sinful nature and we realize what God has done to us, the Holy Spirit does something to us and gives us actually some hope that we can actually resist our sinful natures and that we can, uh, yes, you might say not only just Satan, that's, not only just say no to these things, but actually to to rise to something which is higher. Um, the Beatitudes, as I said today in the sermon, the Beatitudes appear to be just more law, but really what they are is they're a statement of what we can do as Christians with God's help. Um, almost, you know, almost all let me let me draw a little diagram you know, by the way, I want to all the pastors here want to thank you for these very very sweet um, this is This is pastor appreciation week apparently, and i didn't realize it until I got to church today uh, what nice and wonderful things that children in our Sunday school have done for their pastors and both for Pastor Grady and I looked to me like um Pastor Ullman uh, got the check though um, there he is he's well appreciated yeah checks are small um, but nevertheless, uh we greatly appreciate I greatly appreciate um, Pastor Ullman and what he has done, and also our new Pastor Grady, who is coming on board and doing so many good and wonderful things as well. So, you're not going to need me. Uh, thanks a lot, guys. I appreciate that. We, uh, we kind of wish that you were really big losers so that they could appreciate me all the more. But um, <laughs> But maybe I'm the one who's the loser. All right, chapter 2, verse 1. Now, here we have these, we call them evangelical exhortations. That is to say, that as christians hey guys this is something that we should do therefore rid yourself of all malice and all deceit hypocrisy envy and slander of every kind i did this presentation that i did in helsinki <clears throat> This is, um, this is the structure, I guess you might say, of the temple. Here were the worshipers. Here were the steps. The priests would stand upon the steps. The altar of sacrifice. There would be the, uh, the showbread and such, and then the Ark of the Covenant here in the Holy of Holies. We mentioned that this week has been such a significant past week because on the Day of Atonement, that high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies He would offer up the blood of the sacrifice. Uh, He would then return, and if he came out of that Holy of Holies alive, it meant that God had forgiven the sins of the people for that year. And it was a huge, huge, huge thing. And then uh, this week, I think this coming week, is the week when they would celebrate the dedication of the Solomonic Temple. Because Solomon had built that temple, and of course, the temple was a pattern of the tabernacle in the wilderness. And the tabernacle in the wilderness was a pattern of what it is that they saw on top of that mountain when they ate and drank in the presence of God. In other words, they saw, if you will, some sort of a symbol or something that told them that there's something in heaven like this. And that idea that man is created in the image of God I think there's more to that structure than we would think. It's almost what we might call a structure of our very psyche. And that is to say that the presence of God, as He dwells here in the temple, that we who are God's temple, also there is something deeper inside of us. This is—I um, know it's kind of Freudian, and you have to—I have to apologize for that. I know that you're a disciple of Freud, aren't you? You don't even know who that guy is. I, that's okay. It'll take a while, but don't listen to anything he says. Um, that, that within us too, but what happened with the fall into sin is that this inner man, this, this seat where God was intending to dwell has now become the place where the old Adam is hiding out. And that old, old Adam is in every single one of us and we we have a hard time being able to acknowledge him, but everybody knows that that old Adam is there. That Adam, he is the one who is doubting God, and he is the one who is the one that actually believes that he can get away with sin. Right? You know, he's the one who comes up with all the phony good works in order. To, it's like Adam and Eve put on those those uh, those leaves in order to cover up their nakedness, their sh- so-called shame so also we invent good works that we do so that we think that God will not see what we have done or what we have thought or what we have failed to do for him. And that old Adam, now you take the law and the law draws him out. Do this. He says, I ain't going to do it. I don't believe, I don't trust. He comes out and he reveals himself when the law comes. But where the gospel goes there, the old Adam is put to death. So we'll make a nice big cross. He's put to death. And then we go back and we look at the law and we actually see an exhortation to do something which is good and which is rich and holy and which is just just. So you know, the, the good news, which the world doesn't have, the good news is that we can actually fight against our old sinful nature And that the spirit that God has given to us actually enables us to be able to do these things, to fight against only to fight against them. But now, like for instance, when Jesus says, uh, you have heard it said of old, you shall not murder. Well, yeah, you're right. Externally, very few of us have done that. But when the law also says really deep, when you follow that law further, It says that you're not even supposed to be looking down upon somebody and saying, you fool or you idiot. And when that hits us, it also does what? It turns us into people that not only have to be killed, but when we come back to life through the gospel, now we can even love our enemies. Anybody here love their enemies? Anybody here not have any enemies? Well... If you don't have any enemies, I'll just quote the old Bible that says, beware when all men speak well of you. (laughs) You will in some fashion. So when he says get rid of these things, he's not just saying this kind of in this sense of law alone, but as a gospel imperative. Come on, Christians. We don't have to lie to one another. And then he says in chapter, in verse 2, like newborn babies... Crave pure spiritual milk. I've got. I think I told you that I've I've got a grand new grandson, and um, his mommy has been feeding him uh, w- w- with a bottle, and then they hand him to Sove, and Sove goes like this and goes like this, and then the kid spits up on this side and then spits up on this side. And then she feeds him some more, and then she hands him to me, and then he spits up on this side, and then he spits up on this side. But boy, is he hungry. And it's just mirror. And we say, what, what is pure spiritual milk? Um, it's, not, it's used elsewhere sometimes by Paul, for instance, in a different way. His, he sometimes says, you know, we have to grow up and we have to go from milk to meat. And that's what theological growth is spiritual growth that we actually start understanding these doctrines and these teachings that have been handed to us that we become christians with a little deeper and more profound understanding of these kinds of things like law and gospel justification redemption atonement all this stuff but have you ever noticed that when you take those little kids and you put them on your lap and you tell them about jesus that they just love to hear stories about Jesus? That when you tell them about how it is that Jesus loves me, this I know, and they just, Jesus loves them. They've never done anything wrong. They don't sin. They're certain about that. Anybody had any time out? Yeah, yeah, lots of time out. But do you sin? Oh, uh, no, uh-uh. Have you ever done anything wrong? No, uh-uh, I haven't done Have you ever been spanked? Yeah, yeah, for some strange reason. I can't understand why I've been spanked. But the children love to be able to hear the sweetness of the gospel. And you know, sometimes we forget that. We forget that. Just to hear that wonderful, sweet message that God has in Christ forgiven us our sins that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For this law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is law. But thanks be to God who gives us a victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you ever get tired of that? You know, in that that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. We sometimes forget that in light of all the controversies and the fighting in this terrible world that we're living in, you know, I had somebody yesterday that was telling me that um, he was giving me an analysis of what's happened to the Republican Party. He said, "He said the Republican Party is actually divided, quite significantly. There's a there's a voting uh, agreement that has kind of taken place between them all. You know, who to not be Democrats, maybe. But he said there's a huge divide between the Roman Catholic, Lutheran, sacramental Christians, and the Evangelicals, who literally despise and hate." us for our sacramentology. Uh, A candidate up in Fort Wayne was viciously attacked for believing that babies should be baptized by people who were evangelical Republicans. And in this country, that divide is there and it is growing. The so-called evangelicals are despising you and me for the fact that we believe that the grace of God should be given to little tiny children. We're going to have a baptism, by the way, second service. So, yeah, I mean, uh, we're living in a terrible world and we, we, have, we hear these things and it gets us all upset. But then we sometimes forget to just go back to that innocent, sweet gospel. Gospel. It tells us that we have a God who deeply loves us and who has been so caring for us and he's there for us and he hears us and we, we praise and we, we have a, a relationship with him. He knows us by name and we can go into our closets and we can pray to him and he will hear us and he will answer our prayers and we ask and shall be given to you. Seeking you will find, knocking it shall be opened unto you. You can ask for anything that you want. How sweet that is that? Don't you just say that to kids too? Why are we praying to Jesus, Mommy? Because Jesus hears us. Mommy, I've got a nightmare. Say a prayer to Jesus. You'll be fine. Thank you, Mom. You know, you hear this, don't you? Yeah. Well, isn't there a song we sing? Oh, taste and see. How gracious the Lord is. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. How's taste and see? Okay, let's go on here. here. Here we have temple language. Okay, everybody who uh, who uh, wants to read from the NIV, uh, come and join us. We're going to see. Let's read four and five together. As you have come to Him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to Him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. All right, we're going to stop there. Um, now comes this, this temple language and as you know, that cornerstone... when they were building, the cornerstone was the most significant piece in the whole building and structure because it set the foundation this way and it set the foundation this way. And of course, if you've ever uh, built any, this isn't exactly what you would call the scale, but um, you know that this point and this point had better be exactly the same height, whatever the distance might be, it has to be a perfect square, like that. <laughs> Ooh, that's not exactly what you call perfect square. But you got the idea that these, this distance, Chris Colson will testify to the fact that one of the ways that you measure square is by measuring the distance from here to here and by measuring the distance from here to here and if it isn't exactly the same, the building's not square. He says, this is Jesus Christ. And I suspect that we could also say that this, these are the Old Testament saints and these are the New Testament saints and that we are now out of this, we are a temple that has been constructed with living stones and that here is where We are in that structure. He says we're the living temple, the living temple. And he's not just speaking, it's not merely a metaphor. That we are literally united to the temple that is a spiritual temple. That when we are in heaven, that somehow by being members of Christ by being united to him, by being connected to him, which takes place through the waters of baptism, that we are united, literally united to Christ's body. And so therefore he can tell us that we are truly a member of, a part of this temple, this temple that has a holy priesthood going on within itself. For the scriptures say what? See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or the cornerstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. It's a... These are um, these are metaphors that are intended to remind us that when you look at, say, for instance, the cornerstone of the Pharisees, you know that cornerstone of the Pharisees that was a works-righteous cornerstone. They thought that that works-righteous cornerstone was the thing that the church was going to be built upon. It's the same thing with the Reformation. Works righteousness does not build the church. This is the cornerstone. It is what it is that men by nature reject because it is a salvation that comes by grace through. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift from God, lest any man should boast. And the idea that Jesus would do everything necessary for our salvation, it would be given to us as a gift, which is received and grasped by faith. This is something that man by his very nature will not accept so we have to we have to bear this in mind that when we are dealing with the world they they believe in temples too. they believe however in temples that are built upon the doctrine of works righteousness confirmation class Da-dum-da-dum. how many religions are there in the world somebody said they, they made a statement there are 30,000 denominations but how many religions all those twenty nine thousand nine hundred and ninety nine uh, religions out there that are religions of works righteousness are the same it's just different concepts or ideas about how man saves himself the one religion that is the only religion, it is the one religion of the Holy Christian Apostolic Church is a religion that says that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And we don't equate it with a human structure. So we don't say we're the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is the only way, boys, and if you're not in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, you're not going to heaven. Nobody in our Lutheran confession has ever ever said that but there is only one religion and if you do not embrace salvation by grace through faith you will never ever ever put that old Adam to death that old Adam is going to keep coming out even for us it comes back again but we have to remember there is only one saving faith anybody want to I'm just doing all the talking here. Anybody want to talk about this? Okay. All right. Well, see, you'll talk to each other, but you won't talk to me. That's the problem here. Let's go on. He says, they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. And that, uh, that raises some questions, right? Um, The old question of double predestination. Uh, But predestination and what they were destined for only simply means that when you buy into and accept this doctrine of justification by your works, we call it works righteousness, uh, you're going to stumble. So you are destined by your rejection of the gospel you are destined for your destruction. But when we come to faith, which is predestination, that God before time calls us from eternity, the reason why we come to faith is not because we will or we choose, but rather that God chooses us. God chooses us. And that is, that is the great mystery because you would think if God chooses us, he must have not chosen other people. And all I can tell you is that that's not something that the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the cause of our loss of faith, our loss of salvation, the cause is in us. If we are saved, the cause is in us. Thank you. Appreciate that. God. It's in God. All glory be to God, right? He's the cause. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. So it is men's rejection of this gospel that actually brings about this stumbling or this ultimate condemnation. But look what he says now in verse 9. What about you and I? What about you and me? But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. That's a, that's a, I guess you might say from a Jewish standpoint, it's kind of a contradiction, although these words were also given by Moses to the people of Israel, a royal priesthood. Royal means that you are of, who, is the, who, is the, who had the right to be able to be a king? What tribe carried the kingship? In Israel the tribe of Judah right and in fact in the book of Hebrews it, it says you know the, Jesus is a, both a king and a priest and it said that was a contradiction in, in something called the testament of the 12 patriarchs which was a something that was written between the time of the, the book of Malachi and the time of Jesus they looked at this and they said the Messiah is going to be both a king and a priest and they said, well, that's impossible because kings only come from Judah and priests can only come from Levi. So they said, there must be two messiahs. So they thought, that's why they probably thought that John was the first messiah and Jesus was the second messiah. And John will say, no, I'm, I'm just a guy. I'm just a guy. Um, the one who comes after me is above me because he was before me. I, and John is not somebody who is some kind of an incarnate whatever it might be. He's not even an angel. He is just simply a human being that preceded Christ. Well, the book of Hebrews picks that up and says, no, no, no. The priesthood that he has is actually a Melchizedekian priesthood, not an Aaronic priesthood if you go all the way back to the days of of Abraham, there was this guy named Melchizedek who was the priest and king of Jerusalem. Melchizedek, king of Jerusalem. And he was a person who had a Melchizedekian priesthood. It's a priesthood where God appoints this. It's something that is given to an individual. It is not hereditary. And he says, from the Old Testament, we also know that Jesus had this kind of priesthood. Well, so he was both a king and a high priest. And guess what? You and I in that baptism were literally, literally, spiritually reborn from him. And we are, at least by function, we are royal and we are priests. Or priestesses. And that is to say, now, because of our relationship to Christ, we do the same kinds of things that the priests and the kings did. Number one is that as a king, you are a person who is not allowed to become a slave or a servant to anything in this world. You don't obey the world. You don't listen to what the world has to say. You're of royal parentage. You are sons and daughters of the king. And as sons and daughters of the king, there's a dignity to that, but it also means simply that as Christians we are free and nobody has the right to be able to rob you of the freedom that you have as a Christian. Nobody has the right to rule your conscience. Nobody has the right to make up laws. Nobody has the right to be able to tell you what you have to do in order to be able to be saved. You stand your ground. But... We are also servants. We are slaves of one another. As a priest, that priest was there for the purpose not only of teaching the people, but also for interceding. It's your job to pray for the world in which you're living. It's your job to pray for your neighbors. It's your job to pray for people who are sick. It's your job to pray for your children. It's your job to pray for your grandchildren. It's your job to be able to stand there between God and man and to be able to be a person who, just like Moses, goes before God and says, God, please, 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 what do you suppose is gonna, they're going to say if you bring all these people out here and kill them all out in the desert? You think they're going to consider you to be a gracious God? And then he goes to the people and he says, what the heck are you people doing? Don't you understand that what you're doing is wrong and so on and so forth? He's just like a mother who turns to the father and says, honey, you can't be so hard on those kids then she turns to the kids and she says would you please get your act together and your father is right when he tells you that what it is that you've been doing is wrong she's a priest right anybody here not recognize that role as a mother that you've played a couple of times in your life or that your parents have played how many times have you maybe heard your mother in there going honey don't be so hard on those kids and then she comes out and she says your father is right. What you did was wrong. Now, I never did anything wrong, so I, I'm just t- talking about your experiences rather than my, my experiences. Um, all right, so this is our job, and we get to be a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people but now you are the people of God. Once you did not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. We were called out of darkness. Um, I've been telling you that I I just thoroughly enjoy this, this guy named Dan Carlin who does this hardcore history and the way that he elaborates and brings you into the real experiences of these people. But... I mean, you know, you, you, you look at what these Druid priests were doing and how they would sacrifice human beings. Um, how they, w- they would, at times, they would, they would go and they would gather, they would make a, he says that they would make this kind of this wicker idol. Great big thing that would be like 30 feet high. Then they go and they get a bunch of slaves and maybe some people that they just decided that maybe, I don't know, they were going to get rid of them or whatever, and they would put them all inside of this thing. And then in their ritualistic worship, they would turn, put it on fire while these people were then consumed by fire. Once you were not a people, once you were living in this darkness and this ignorance that you had to supply human sacrifice in order to be able to please the gods. You are living in anger and malice and tribes. There were, he said there were over f- something like 50-some tribes uh, of these Celts that were living in the area of what is now France and Belgium. They were constantly fighting with each other, constantly stealing each other's people, try, try, you know, dragging them away. They were slaves. They would sell them, and they would use this as money. They would, it was just this, word, this, and this wasn't just there. It was everywhere in the world. They were living in this darkness and here comes christianity and what does christianity do it says we're not going to we're going to put away our rage we're going to put away our anger we're going to put away our malice we're not going to be plotting against one another these senators in rome uh, rome was was like it was like the mafia times 10 it was these were people who were constantly devising plots against one another i mean the, the entire the only reason why it is that that Claudius, have you ever heard of Claudius? Claudius, he he had this, this, this stutter like this. They thought he was an idiot uh, because he had this—I uh, don't know—cerebral this, this, this palsy or something like that. And he, you know, he walked with a limp, you know. And he Claudius, and they thought they killed everybody else. There wasn't anybody who had royal blood in at all left. And Claudius was actually brilliant and he would go into the libraries and he read all of these historians so that when he became emperor, he was an absolutely fantastic emperor, but they thought they were just going to get this idiot, set him up, and everybody else was going to kind of take advantage of him. And he was brilliant. But this is the world that they were in. Here come Christians and they're rising up with these works and deeds where they can forgive and they can pardon. They could even be slaves. And they were willing to live underneath their masters even when they were cruel masters. They would serve them without objecting even to some of their cruelties. They bore this, this punishment that was unjust with incredible dignity. And guess what happened? They converted their masters. They converted them. So this is, um, this is uh, hard for us sometimes to understand that by the way that we... Well, I was giving um, Tom Weed uh, yesterday a little background to this. We were talking a little bit about Martin Luther again. Mart- when Martin Luther went before the emperor this common monk he went basically went to die he knew what he knew that if he stood his ground and if he refused to recant that he was going to die that they were going to put him to death but his courage was kind of like those christians who were being put into the arena and you know with the lions and such he was entering it and when he did there was a young noble guy from up in Denmark, now actually Schleswig-Holstein, who was there because, well, he was a minor noble, but he was invited to this diet. His name was Frederick. And uh, Frederick was so moved by the courage of Martin Luther that he went back to Denmark and just in his little tiny region that was his responsibility he began to invite in Lutheran pastors to see whether or not his parishes would be accepting of that but then this guy by the name of Christian Christian II who was the, uh, the king of Denmark he got in some big time trouble killed a bunch of nobles up in Sweden and a bunch of people rose up against him even in Denmark And there came to be this war, and this guy named Frederick was made king of Denmark as a result of it, and guess who brought the Lutheran faith to Denmark? Yeah. One little man's courage so inspired the hearts of those who couldn't find it that they stood up and they actually had and gained the same kind of courage. He was a theologian who loved to be able to listen to Martin Luther's doctrine and teaching. And he invited a guy by the name of Bugenhagen, who had been Luther's pastor, to come to Denmark. And Bugenhagen came and he brought about reform in all of Denmark. Brought the gospel to each and every one of those congregations. So when we think sometimes that where we make our stand, where we stand up against the world as Christians, when we are praying for, it, when we are priests interceding for the world in which we're living, what you are doing, no matter how insignificant you think it is, it is significant. It's enormously significant. And that's why Peter tells us to have some rebar in our spiritual lives. Okay. Um, I think we have gone as far as we can go and we are going to celebrate with the Crimeans. You know, the lady that was up here with that great big basketball that she swallowed? <laughs> um, she had a wonderful, handsome little baby uh, that uh, we're going to baptize here in just a few minutes. So let's close with a word of prayer. Oh Lord God, Heavenly Father, We pray that we might have the courage to be able to go out into the world and to remain steadfast, not only in our confession of the gospel, but also we pray that we might be able to put aside the deeds of darkness and live holy, righteous, upstanding lives in this world to which we have been sent. Help us to understand the dignity that you have granted to us in making us your children that we indeed are royal in every sense of the term, but also that we are priests, praying on behalf of the world in which we live, praying for those that you have given to us, praying even on behalf of our enemies, that through the courage with which we carry this confession into the world, that others might see, know, and understand what the light is and come to share that same light with us in this kingdom of God. We pray it In the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.